Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the battlefront, explore how old British farming vehicles are being turned into Ukrainian rocket launchers, and we analyse Vladimir Putin's latest speech on the invasion. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilised energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 8th of December, day 288. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, and freelance journalist, Colin Freeman. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Certainly. Well, thank you, David, and good afternoon to everyone. I think it's only right to start on the critical question of infrastructure in Ukraine. As we speak, there have been continued Russian airstrikes on that infrastructure that has seriously damaged the grid and led to emergency and planned outages across the country. We understand today that Russian forces have fired more than a thousand rockets and missiles at Ukraine's energy infrastructure recently, which, as I say, remains in operation despite this sustained major damage, which is quite remarkable, really. And this would, of course, tally with what President Zelensky was saying last week is that he expected as bad as last week was for this week to be as serious. And indeed, we are seeing signs of that. Although, as I say, thus far, the infrastructure seems to have held. In other news in the military space, the Kremlin has said uh, today that its forces are still set on seizing parts of eastern and southern Ukraine that Moscow has claimed as its own, even including some territory that is now controlled by Ukraine. Most prominently, of course, they are talking about the four annexed provinces, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia and Herzon, uh, after holding those so-called referendums there that we've spoken about at length in the past and that have been wide-scalely rejected across uh, across Europe and, and the Western world, and yet uh, Russia claims are legitimate. But that territory that is now controlled by Ukraine, most symbolically significant being Herzon, of course, uh, the, the Russians are still claiming is, is very much their intention to retake at, uh, at some juncture, which I think is significant given um, certain remarks made by Putin, uh, which we'll talk about later on. Just a couple of other stories in the military space. 
According to Ukrainian statistics, a further 340 Russian soldiers have been killed by Ukraine in the past 24 hours alone, which would bring the death toll, according to their statistics, for Russian forces of upwards of 93,000. Now, as we always say on the podcast, those numbers should be treated with a very large handful of salt, let alone a pinch. Uh, But nonetheless, I think it does speak to just the severity of the fighting at present, even if it were half of those uh, numbers killed. And of course, we're not including Ukrainian figures in this and in their casualty rates. We spoke yesterday, of course, about the very heavy fighting uh, in Bakhmut. Um, but there are numerous fronts at the moment where fighting is very, very fierce indeed. And I think there's something of a mythos has grown at the moment that, that the lines are totally static and frozen and that both sides are, are only uh, rebuilding their forces and resupplying. But as I say, that statistic speaks to just quite how fierce the fighting truly is. And I'm sure that Roland will have a few thoughts on that uh, in a moment or two. Um, Just one other story, as I say, that I wanted to talk about, which is that uh, Russia has been forced to patch up its elite tank unit formed to defend Moscow uh, with newly mobilized troops after suffering heavy casualties in Ukraine. Now, that's according to the British MOD. It's our Ministry of Defense. This is the first guards tank army, the 1GTA, as it's sometimes known, which has been dispatched along the defensive line in Luhansk um, and it but it's still well below its authorized strength of 25,000 and according to the MOD they've said the effectiveness of 1GTA and other formations defensive operations will largely depend upon the extent of mutually supporting fallback positions and they go on and talk about how it would appear that these units have been quite heavily degraded Of course, the Moscow's first guards tank army uh, is believed to be made up of at least 500 tanks and other combat vehicles. But as I say, we're seeing signs that they are nowhere near at that strength, which just speaks to quite how severely they have, as I say, been degraded in recent battles around Kharkiv. And uh, just on this point, uh, according to uh, the MOD as well, Russia has an almost continuous trench system stretching 37 miles between the Russian border and and, uh, certain annexed areas um, in order to defend against the Ukrainian advances. And we spoke recently about how the striking the images are uh, from these trenches, trenches from both sides, reminiscent of the First World War, uh, mud and awful um, degraded temperatures as well. So uh, I just wanted to draw attention to just the scale of those trenches. And no doubt they will be very, very active in this winter ahead. Although, as I say, I think it's important to emphasize the fact that these lines are not frozen, like they're sometimes um, imagined as being in the First World War. They're very, very much active and many, many people are dying every day. But I know Roland has a few thoughts on the trench system. Thanks, Francis. Yes, Roland, can we turn to you? Would you like to come in on on these trenches and on this the story Francis has detailed about the first uh, guards tank army? Yeah, I mean the trenches are interesting because when you start digging trenches, obviously it's kind of you're fixing yourself in place, and and this big this big plan to build this huge defensive line, which I think actually is it Wagner Group was talking about this a few months ago, digging this this great elaborate set of defences stretching basically straight south. If you look at it on the map, it kind of comes from the border straight south, kind of, it just runs to the east of Sviatova, that, that, that key town that the uh, Ukrainians are trying to capture. So it, it kind of looks like it's designed as, as a kind of fallback option. If, if Sviatova falls, then that's, that's the line the, the Russians would 
try to use to to stop the Ukrainians there. Um, now, will it work? Won't it work? Um, our old friend, Mr. Gherkin, is back in Moscow. So <laughs> to recap, those of our uh, listeners who don't know, I'm sure you will do, Igor Gherkin, convicted war criminal now for the shooting down of MH17, militant Russian nationalist, also a great commentator on the war. He went off to fight for a bit. He, 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 he resurfaced this week back in Moscow with his usual highly critical accounts of, of everybody else he saw at the front and, and of the command. Um, and he was extremely scornful of this idea. He said, you know, we're, we're wasting money on what is going to be a completely useless defence. Um, he likened it to the Mannerheim line. Um, he said, you know, it's like the Mannerheim line. It's nothing like the Maginot line. He just keeps on, you know, referencing these historic examples of attempts to build great defensive lines that that failed. Um, but we know his kind of attitude to the Russian high command. He was never um, going to say anything positive. Um but interestingly, this this isn't happening only in uh, in Ukraine itself. So, we had one of those intelligence updates from the British Ministry of Defence yesterday, um, talking about this happening in Belgorod. Now, you know, bless them, the MOD do have this tendency of kind of recycling um, open source stuff. The truth is, the governor of Belgorod region announced um, the creation of this um, kind of deeper trench system. Uh, system of defences uh, back in October, and he's been posting kind of photographs of, you know, big lines of deep trenches filled with water and and concrete, um, concrete dragons teeth tank defences on on the steep. Um, the governor of neighbouring Kursk region has been doing that as well. Um, and the interesting thing is, of course, that's on Russian territory, and there are two reasons you might be doing that. Um, one is a kind of a performative thing, you know, kind of. A bit of propaganda, basically. Um, tell tell the public we are defending the homeland. Um, you know, this is what we're fighting for, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, even if you don't think the the Ukrainians are going to come across the border. On the other hand, um, they do seem to be putting a bit of effort into it. Um, so, I do think both of these trench systems, the one inside Russian territory and the one in occupied Ukraine, does speak to this this broader swing. Um, in the initiative of the war, that the initiative is with the Ukrainians, that that the Russians, no matter how unlikely it is, and, and despite the fact the Ukrainians haven't shown any interest in doing this, um, that that certain people in the Russian high command do consider it a possibility uh, that the Ukrainians might launch a counter invasion, cross the border, make a drive for Belgorod. Um, so an interesting, uh, just, just, I think it's a, that behaviour talks about how the psychology has changed. Um, in this war um, and the first GTA and the first GTA a very storied regiment you know goes uh, regiment sorry army um, goes back to the second world war meant to be the elite kind of core of of, um, of Russia's armoured echelons um, they've been involved in the war since the very beginning um, they were in the build up if you remember about a year ago when we were we were seeing the Russians move their troops into position um, one of the reasons we were all very wide is because the first guards tank army was sent to Voronezh, uh, and then from Voronezh it was it was suddenly deployed right on the border, bang opposite Kharkiv. And I remember in the run up um, to the war, kind of keeping my eye on Kharkiv for that reason, because I knew if you put the first GTA's tank army there, yeah, you know, that's not a unit you use as a diversion. That was that was a unit that was going to go into action. Um, and that is one of the reasons why uh, we ended up reporting in Kharkiv from you know very very early in the war, and you know we got there 
uh, the day after the invasion because we knew um, that meant there was going to be a drive on that city. Um, and there was, and it failed, basically. So that, that unit has taken an absolute mauling. It, it was fighting in Kharkiv for most of the war. Um, it is the unit, um, we believe, uh, that lost a lot of its tanks in the, in the general retreat from Kharkiv uh, back in September. Um, so it's been, it's really, it's quite literally been through the wars, um, if you can say that. And and if it is in the state that the, you know, the British Ministry of Defence says it's in, um, you know, that's indicative of, of the general state of the Russian army, um, I suppose, because that is an elite unit, the first GTA. You know, that's uh, that's household division, shall we say? You know, this is this is this is not a kind of. Um, line infantry outfit um, that you might fill with conscripts anyway um, you would want that to be filled with you know experienced guys the best guys they're meant to be the tip of the spear um, if they're degraded then the whole Russian war machine um, is pretty battered well thank you very much uh, for that Roland Colin Freeman thank you so much uh, for joining us can I come to you we've talked about aid to Ukraine at a state level um, at a, a charitable level and uh, all the way through this, this uh, the, the, these last nine months, we've interviewed a number of people who are involved in, in it. Uh, we've talked to them about what they're sending on all sorts of different levels. You've unearthed this absolutely fascinating story about how trucks that you might see on an English farm are turning up on the front lines against the Russian army. Can you tell us what you found? Yes, this is a story about the Mitsubishi L200 um, a, a pickup truck that you might normally see driving around places like Norfolk or the Cotswolds, where it's in, in, in very popular among farmers and country families and other other rural types. Uh, firstly, as a as a general farm um, workhorse, you know it can uh, deliver a, carry a, a, a load a ton a ton of manure over a, a field or whatever. Um, and also it's quite handy for kind of navigating around the, the car park in your local waitrose. So it's popular with the barber jacket set. Um, it has also unexpectedly become popular um, on Ukraine's front line. Um, what they do is they, they buy these vehicles secondhand from the UK where they're very cheap. And then they transport them, the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, to the front lines uh, of eastern Ukraine. And they use them as adapted ro- mobile rocket launchers. So um, someone I know who has been buying them in um, uh, in the West Country, um, a retired West Country businessman who's working as a, a volunteer um, assisting the Ukrainian um, war effort, uh, largely out the kindness of his heart. Uh, he has purchased several of these um, uh, Mitsubishi L200s and uh, he's driven them over to Ukraine. And then they've then ended up um, a few days later. Uh, firing rockets at the Russians um, on the front lines in places like Kherson. Um, uh, he showed me a video of one in action. Basically, it's just got the the, the the rear pickup area where you might normally stash concrete or building materials or, or whatever is adapted to fit a mobile rocket launcher. And it also is fitted with stabilizing panel. And then off it goes for an army that doesn't that, that is still quite short on mechanized vehicles this is considered pretty effective um so uh the, the chap i've um spoken to though is is just one of many people who are now scouring the uk for these particular uh, mitsubishis and also other pickup trucks as well the mitsubishi is just one of the most popular 
Um, and from what I'm, I can gather, uh, they uh, something like 100, uh, 150 of them have already been purchased and taken over to Ukraine. All of them mainly old um, farming stock, often 100,000 miles on the clock, probably just going to end their days otherwise resting in some farmer's field. Uh, and such to, to the point where actually um, the the, this, the the market is beginning to get a bit more scarce for them, and the prices are going up. They were apparently selling for two to five thousand pounds second hand. Um, now that now that's going up slightly because they're so much in demand in Ukraine. Well, that that's amazing. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, the, this group of volunteers? You know. Um, who are they? Who may, who, who's coming together? And how many are they? And how has what they've been doing changed uh, through the through the conflict? Well, the chap I spoke to, I'll call him Freddie by a pseudonym. Um, he, I think, like a number of the people who have been involved in helping the Ukrainian war effort from uh, the UK, uh, he has a connection to the country, um, I think a family friend or something. Uh, he went out and stayed there a few years ago. And so when the war came, uh, he felt quite strongly that he should try to do something to help. Um, so he's been involved with a few other people he knows in organising aid deliveries. And it started out, I think, primarily as you know medicines and things like that. It then diversified into things like army surplus stuff, you know, uh, uniforms, boots, um, map, uh, compasses and radios and things like that. Um, and then as he developed direct contacts with some of the Ukrainian um, volunteer, um, you know, volunteer fighting groups on the ground, it became some of whom are are, are themselves or were themselves um, foreign military volunteers, i.e., guys from uh, the UK and, and Europe. Um, it became it became apparent that um, what they often needed was vehicles, sometimes just for transport and logistics, but also vehicles um, for use um, uh, on on the front lines. What they do with the vehicles is they, they usually paint them different camouflage colours and then attach either rocket launchers or machine guns to them and so on. So that's what Freddie has been doing. Um, he's managed to get a number of people. Um, uh, donating either either the donating equipment direct or donating, I think, money to him so that he can purchase um, uh, equipment. Uh, he goes, he scans Auto Trader, I think, and a few other um, eBay and a few other sites to to find um, likely pickup trucks to take over. Um, what these uh, these volunteer groups often do also is um, is actually supervise and take part in the delivery of these product uh, of, of these aid supplies because I think they're aware that one concern is that um, people may donate stuff and then find that it gets um, uh, pilfered or uh, off at the border where there, there is apparently a bit of a problem with um, corruption and so on, um, or that it just lies you know, redundant in some warehouse somewhere. Um, Freddie's promise is that if you give him something to him, give something to him, he will ensure that it actually gets to the end user fairly quickly. And these um, these trucks, these converted sort of rock, mobile rocket launchers, have seen, as you said, have seen action. Um, there's one thing I, I want to pick up on that, which is quite interesting, because of course, um, British cars, the, the driver sits on the right hand side. What effect has that had uh, in Ukraine? 
Well, yes, th- this is apparently um, one of the reasons why um, these trucks are um, in cheap supply in the UK on the second-hand market. For, for the benefit of um, uh, our listeners overseas, we in the UK drive on the left-hand side of the road, which means that our cars are fitted with um, uh, with, with steering wheels on on the right-hand side uh, of the vehicle. Um, that is fairly unusual, uh, certainly in Europe uh, and uh, much of um, Ukraine and Russia and elsewhere. So that means that um, when one of our um, right-hand side vehicles is is in is in somewhere like Ukraine, where the Russians see it, uh, if a Russian sniper, for example, gets it in his sights, he will generally aim for where he thinks the driver is, and will aim accordingly um, on the what would be whether if it was a Russian vehicle would be the left-hand side. And so apparently, according to Freddie, several of his vehicles um, have had uh, bullets um, going through the left left hand side of the vehicle through even what would be the driver's window, which fortunately has not been occupied because the driver's been sat on the right hand side instead. Um, and that has apparently saved the driver's bacon in one or two occasions. And you mentioned earlier you've seen some uh, videos of, of these mobile rocket launches uh, in in action, do we have a sense of how effective they are? What do the Ukrainian troops tell uh, tell the suppliers? Uh, they, they seem to be pretty happy with them, and it's not the first time that they've been used. Um, back in the summer, the Ukrainian um, armed forces, the, the Defense Ministry, um, own official tweet. Uh, put out a video of a um, uh, an L200. We don't know where it was from, a Mitsubishi L200 being uh, used with, with um, a rocket launcher that had been taken from uh, a Russian helicopter that had been downed in a previous attack. Um, so they're clearly fairly um, confident that they can be used well. You have to put stabilizers on them and other things. Some other people I've spoken to because there are other volunteer organizations including ukrainian organizations that are scouring the uk second-hand car market for pickup trucks um they say they're best suited just um uh with having uh, machine guns mounted on them um uh what are sometimes known as technicals um rather than having rocket launchers but uh, it, it seems that they, they they can be adapted to to a wide range of purposes, you know, which is the the kind of standard marketing spiel you get for most all-terrain vehicles, um, and they can have, they can also have armour put on them on them as well. They're robust enough because they're designed to carry, say, a ton in weight. They're robust enough to have basic steel plate armour stuck on them without it weighing them down too much and causing too much tension on the suspension. Well, thank you very much uh, for all of that, Colin. Um, Francis, you had a question. Yes, well, thanks, David. I'm a proud Norfolk man, but I've never seen a Mitsubishi with a rocket launcher. Uh, quite quite remarkable uh, hearing about this. Uh, really interesting, Colin. Thank you. Uh, my, my question is just, uh, I suppose, a simple one, really, which is one can imagine that if it were the Russians doing this, we'd say it sort of screams of desperation. But actually reading your piece, it sounds like this is the complete opposite in the Ukrainian context. This is actually really, really helpful for them, and they seem very happy to, to have them. But I just wondered whether you got a sense of just how effective these are. I mean, is this something that, that you really feel they they have been a very effective operationally on the ground or do you think it's another example of where perhaps it, it it's done more in the information war as it were than actually practically on the field i'm no expert on these things but as far as i can tell they are in pretty widespread use 
they certainly have a propaganda function as well i think but um uh, when you uh, w- when you go towards the front lines in ukraine you do see a lot of um pickup trucks uh painted in military colors uh, being used um sometimes just as, as transport vehicles but quite often um with uh, machine guns or other um bits of military kit on the back um and also in other theaters of war that i've covered whether it's libya um afghanistan other places um it, most armies have a sort of you know a runabout vehicle that has got a, 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 a you know some kind of heavy weapon capability on it um um rocket launchers perhaps a little bit more seldom but i mean if you look at the british army for example in um uh, in afghanistan they certainly started off by having often having uh, land rovers with heavy machine guns on and go back as far as uh, the days of the early sas in north africa during world war 2 which um some of the uh, our British viewers will be following on a, this new um, BBC TV series, SAS Rogue Heroes. They apparently pioneered this um, with uh, um, a, a, a machine gun mounted on the back of a truck. So I, th- I think there certainly is a, a place for the, a vehicle of this sort in within the Ukrainian army, um, that within the Ukrainian military setup, and that of many other um, militaries too, especially if you're running a kind of insurgent campaign where you want small, nimble, hit and run vehicles um, for certain purposes. Well, thank you, Colin, and thank you, Francis. Uh, Roland, do you have anything to add to this? I mean, it's, we were talking a little bit about about this sort of thing just before we started recording. I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a great believer in the technical. Normally, we talk about the Toyota and Toyota Wars, um, but it, it's basically the same thing. And, and as Colin says, um, you head out towards the front lines in Ukraine, um, Mitsubishis, Toyotas, Nissans, um, any kind of pickup truck, spray paint it green, um, you know, put a, put a heavy machine gun on the back or not, um, can be used for anything, um, you know, transport moving supplies um it can be used in combat but i mean these are if we had domin on this on this episode i would be engaging him in a, in a in a slightly playful debate because i've often thought that you know western militaries play down this thing um there's a that if you want to get into the war nerdy stuff there, there was a thing in the 1980s called the toyota war or the great toyota war um and and long story short uh colonel gaddafi who then ran libya um, invaded Chad with a very large uh, conventional army, um, tanks, aircraft, the lot, as if he was Rommel with the Africa Corps. Um, the Chadians are really on the back foot. And then the Mitterrand government, uh, the French, gave the Chadians a few hundred um, Toyota Land Cruisers, um, put rocket launchers and machine guns on them, and it turned the tide of the war. Um, and the, the, the Libyans, in fact, had to learn to do that themselves um, before you know the war could come to an end, so they could they could find an answer. So these there is a real pedigree to fast moving um, civilian pickup trucks adapted um, to this kind of purpose. And I mean, Colin was talking about Libya. I mean, absolutely. I was in I was in Libya. I think in is it twenty nineteen or twenty twenty um, when you know Colonel Haftar and his Russian mercenaries were still outside uh, Tripoli trying to get in. Um, and I was shown footage of a of a of a recent battle um, between basically two armies of these things, um, and it, it it was incredible. It had been filmed, um, I think, from from one of these trucks on a on a GoPro or something, 
Um, it looked like a western. You know, hundreds of these things streaming out of the desert, just spraying machine guns at each other. We're not quite seeing that kind of thing in uh, in Ukraine for, for a number of reasons. Um, not least because I think there's a lot more heavy weaponry around that, that that can make that a little bit dangerous. And if you talk to Dom about this, and when I say to Dom, look, you know, you're always writing these stories about how, you know, procurement and, and, and why isn't the British Army's new, is the Ajax thing hasn't come along. Why don't you scrap all this, get rid of your tanks, just buy a load of Toyotas. Um, and then Dom will come back at you and talk about the, well, um, you have to understand the balance between armor and mobility and lethality and, and trade-off and so on and so forth. Um, to which my answer is always, no, just buy, buy loads of Toyotas. Um, so actually, actually an absolutely fascinating piece um, by Colin, and I highly recommend you all go and read it. Well, thank you, Roland. Uh, thank you, Roland, for, for, for representing both sides of the debate there. I'm sure we will talk to, uh, to, to Dom tomorrow and get his thoughts. And thank you, Colin. That, as, as Roland says, it's absolutely fascinating. The title of the piece is uh, The British Farming Vehicles Being Turned Into Ukrainian Rocket Launchers. So you can go and find that on the Telegraph website. And there is at the end of that, there is a short, um, there is a line about how, how, how if, if you wanted to contact these people or, or help, you can do that. Um, so thank you. Uh, call in for that and we'll put that in the show notes as well I think. Can we move on to uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin's remarks uh, the other day his most extensive remarks on the invasion for some time. Uh, Francis, what did he say? Certainly, well I'll come to that in a ver- in, in a second uh, David if I may because we've just got breaking news that's come through I was going to touch on this later on but I'll come to it first which is that we've just heard that a successful prisoner swap has taken place between the United States and Russia um, I'll read the tweet directly from President Biden. He says, quote, moments ago, I spoke to Britt Greiner. She is safe. She's on a plane on the way home. Close quote. Now, the latest in the space was that talks between Russia and the US on prisoner swaps had only made sporadic progress. Indeed, I was going to report on that in a few minutes time, but it just shows how fast things are moving. And as I say, it would appear that as of this moment, and if you're hearing this and it's been kept in the uh, in the podcast version, so it means that it must have happened, that the jailed American Brittany Griner, basketball, basketball player, of course, um, has been freed and is on the way back. Of course, Paul Whelan is still out there. I, I don't know if that we may hear more on him uh, more later today. I don't know. Now, it would appear, again, not confirmed yet, that uh, the convicted arms dealer Victor Bout um, is going to be has been part of this deal in order to return uh, Miss Greiner to the United States. But as I say, it's a breaking story, so I don't want to say anything that's inaccurate. Um, but nonetheless, I think quite a significant moment because, of course, this has been uh, an ongoing saga in relation to the war uh, now for for, for several weeks and things have clearly been heating up in this space. So um, I just thought I would turn to that first. But yes, turning to Putin's remarks, I think these are the most extensive televised comments we've seen from Putin about the invasion for some weeks now. So I think it's worth analysing them in detail. The most important top line, shall we say, from this, I think relates to his remarks on the nuclear question. So I'll read the quote directly. We haven't gone mad. We realise what nuclear weapons are. We have these means in more advanced and modern form than any other nuclear country, but we aren't about to run around the world brandishing this weapon like a razor. And then he reiterates the point that they will not use the weapons first. It would have to be another country that used them first. Well, obviously, of course, a significant intervention, I think, for the obvious reason that is not what he was saying Initially, when the war began, there was all of that saber rattling, threatening with Satan 2 and all of these more advanced nuclear weapons. And so I think 
this is important to be seen as a backpedaling here as a consequence of increased pressure from European leaders, perhaps who are dangling for some kind of deal. But also, I think, particularly from China, which would speak to what we spoke about last week uh, with regard to certain information that seems to have leaked out about the pressure that China has put on Russia to calm down in its nuclear rhetoric for all of the fears um, that, well, that should be obvious. Um, The other interesting aspect of the speech is where he talks about, and I'll read this quote as well, as for the duration of the special military operation, well, of course, this can be a long process. And then he went on and talked about praising the Russian gains, saying that the Azov Sea has become an internal Russian water. I think the Ukrainians have something to say about that, but uh, regardless, and then making another allusion to Peter the Great's conquests, which again are quite remarkable, I think it's fair to say. Um, But But why is this significant? Well, I think this is significant because it's clearly appealing to three distinct audiences. First of all, and most significantly, the Russian people saying that this is going to be a long war. Prepare yourselves. Second, I think it's appealing to his generals and his commanders and saying that I'm not going to pull the plug, that the support will be continued. But I think most significantly, it's the audience. It's the international audience that really counts here. It's sending a message to Europe, to America, uh, to Britain that... Are you really certain that you want to continue this level of military and financial support to Ukraine in the long, long term? If not, this may be the moment to be uh, pursuing other avenues for dialogue. And uh, of course, one could should question, I think, whether this is coming from a position of strength, as some commentators are saying, or from a position of weakness. And I think actually it's more of the latter. The reason he's dialing down the rhetoric on the nuclear question is is he's hoping for some kind of off-ramp, some kind of uh, opportunity for dialogue with Ukraine, forced by pressure from European leaders and from uh, um, other quarters. And it's also because he knows that the weak point within uh, Western unity is around the duration of this war and how long they can afford to continue this level of support and also all around energy concerns in the long term. So this is not from a position of strength. It's from a position of weakness caused by fears, I'm sure, that he has and Russia has about what a long war would mean for all the reasons, of course, that we've spoken about at length in the past, which is that the longer this war goes on, I think there's more and more evidence that favours the Ukrainians rather than the Russians. But it seems that that has still yet to cut through all quarters of the international commentariat and particularly certain leaders in Europe. Thank you very much, Francis. Roland Oliphant, what's, what did you make of um, Vladimir Putin's remarks? Yeah, they, they, were, they were quite extensive. He was speaking to his, um, his Human Rights Council and it was one of these... Uh, it's a thing he does. Um, he'll have a, a meeting that is inexplicably televised and very long and it gives him an opportunity to kind of... Um, you know, he's, rep- he's he's speaking directly to the people in the meeting, but really he's speaking to the Russian public. Um, I thought the nuclear comments were significant, actually, um, which is why they're at the top of the story. You will read in the Telegraph if you picked up a copy today, um, because he 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 has. There's no doubt about it. Since the war began, he really has played the nuclear card. He the the threats. You know, you almost couldn't call them veiled threats. I mean the. The implication was clear. I mean, at one point in September, he was talking about how, well, I mean, the United States created a president in a president in 1945 with Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and you know, and and by the way, my you know my nuclear triad is on high alert for anything, and we'll do what it takes, and all this, and and it, you know, the implication was clear. Everybody was worried about it. Um, no, you know, 
when I look in in what was it September around that time, um, you know, I was I was on assignment in Ukraine at the time, and you know, we were kind of having conversations with one another and with you know with with Ukrainian soldiers. But you know, maybe maybe we should stick, you know, stay outside the big cities for a few days. You know, just just looking at the map, thinking, well, if they were going to drop a nuke, where would you put it? Maybe I'll just make sure I'm not, you know, in a major potential target. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I'll take myself off somewhere quiet for a bit because um, there is there is no doubt the the threat was was palpable. Um, and and this, as Francis says, you know, the tone of this is completely no, no, none of that. We're, we're back to to our long-standing public position, which there will be, is that there will be Russia will not be a first user of nuclear weapons. It's very clear about that. Um, we do not do that. Um, we've got all these weapons. They are there as a deterrent, and they're only to be used in retaliation if we are struck first by nuclear weapons. He then said, um, "Well, of course, there's no point in being the second user because then." Um, you know, we won't have anything to respond with. Um, but we, we seem to me he was kind of acknowledging a, a, a basic contradiction in you know mutual assured destruction that we all worry about. But but nonetheless, yes, the um, the, the tone was, was was very much I'm rowing back from from that previous threat. Um, I think we may find out why years down the line when the archives are opened. Um, we were talking the other the other week about um, uh, about this reporting about about China's possible role. Um, in that, um, but but yes, an interesting development. The other thing, yes, talking about how the war is going to probably last a long time. Um, you know that I think is directed to the Russian public. Um, it, expect this to drag on, um, and 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 also directed to the Russian public. Um, ruling out for now, not ruling out entirely, but saying there's no need for any new wave of mobilization. Um, the army isn't asking for it. The Ministry of Defence doesn't need it. Um, and what he's basically responding to there are these rumours on, you know, Russian telegram and social media, which have been getting stronger and stronger over the past few weeks, that there is going to be a new wave of call-ups in January and February. Um, and, and it's got to the point where people are kind of saying, listen, I know people who work in the... Um, in the recruitment office in, I don't know, St. Petersburg or, or Novosibirsk or something, and they've been told, listen, January and February are going to be busy. Um, so lots of those rumours flying around. It was massively dislocating for Russian society. It was the first time that the war really came home um, to the Russian public. It made everybody in Moscow extremely nervous. Just going on like conversations I've had with, with people in Moscow just changed the atmosphere completely. The war was no longer a spectator sport, and people have been, you know, talking about you know what happens if there's another wave um he was clearly with those remarks trying to 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 calm people down trying to nip that in the bud um but of course he doesn't rule it out completely does he he just says well there's no need for it at the moment um so you know would not be the first time that vladimir putin has been caught telling a half truth if it turns out in january and february a lot of russian men are receiving call-up papers um so yeah, I think I'll leave that there. But yes, um, um, he was obviously in the mood to to proclaim um, quite extensively on the war, which I think is also significant. Well, thank you, Francis and Roland. Colin, can I just come to you quickly? Just uh, Francis mentioned uh, this breaking news we're reading that Brittany Griner has been released by Russia in a one-for-one prisoner swap. I'm just reading this from CBS News um, in exchange for Victor Boot. And you've written about um, about the arms dealer. Can you tell us? Can you tell us a little bit more? 
Yes, uh, this is Victor Boot, um, uh, also known as the Lord of War, the Merchant of Death. Um, he's a Russian arms dealer who, in the 1990s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, uh, became notorious for selling surplus, surplus Soviet arms stock to just about every conflict zone in the world, be it the uh, Afghanistan, um, Angola, many parts of Africa, um, the Liberian Civil War, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and he was jailed in, uh, uh, he was arrested in a sting by the, the US in 2012 and was jailed for 25 years. Um, he is the kind of character who you could write books and make films about, and indeed several books and films have been written about him. Uh, most famously, the Notor uh, sorry, Lords of War, starring Nicolas Cage, which was a, a major Hollywood film. Um, uh, and um, he, he, he certainly has lived a very, very colourful life. Uh, at the moment, he's in a, a maximum security prison in the United States. But we, uh, I, but he's he's always claimed that he was a victim of a miscarriage of justice. That uh, it was a sting operation that was carried out against him, where he was basically set up. Um, and uh, as far as we understand, he is now going to be uh, released in exchange for Brittany Griner, the American basketball player who's currently serving nine years in America, in, in Russia, on drug charges. Th this comes as no great surprise. Um, Victor Bout's lawyer, uh, uh, and he's got a lawyer in New York who I was speaking to just recently, said he was confident a few months ago that Victor Bout would be swapped. I mean, he's, he's already, you know, quite a long way into his sentence anyway. Uh, and thinking about it now, the lawyer said, um, uh, when I asked him when that might happen, uh, he said, don't expect anything until after the US midterm elections are over, because he said he didn't think Joe Biden uh, would um, want that as a headline ahead of the elections. You know, US government releases convicted Russian arms dealer. Um, and lo and behold, the US elections are over. And now we see this deal is apparently um, afoot. Well, thank you very much for that, Colin. Much needed uh, context and depth there. We're just starting to get to the end of our time together today. So can I just go to each of you for your final thoughts? Uh, Francis, would you like to go first? Sure. Well, I just wanted to talk about uh, it's that time of year again where we hear about who Time magazine's person of the year is. And unsurprisingly, that person is uh, Vladimir Zelensky described by the magazine as the most influential person in Europe. Uh, it's talked about how, you know, nominating him was the most clear cut in uh, memory, uh, hailed the leader's decision to remain in Kiev and rally his country. I think it's important to say that he's not only been described as person of the year, but also uh, alongside the, the spirit of Ukraine. So it's got a very, very bold and colourful uh, front cover of the magazine, which has Zelensky's face and it's surrounded by a sort of floral wreath of of, of Ukrainian figures from the war, um, all sort of doused in yellow and blue. So it's really a work of art and, um, and very impressive. But it's also accompanied by an interesting long read by uh, one of their journalists at Time magazine, which has been interviewing uh, Zelensky as part of the piece, but also has been following him around the country. And there were a, co a couple of interesting things that, that I, I plucked out of it that I just thought I would 
talk about um, to end today. So uh, this is a direct quote from the piece. Zelensky's success as a wartime leader has relied on the fact that courage is contagious. It spread through Ukraine's political leadership in the first days of the invasion, as everyone realized the president had stuck around. If that seems like a natural thing for a leader to do in a crisis, consider historical precedent. Only six months earlier, the president of Afghanistan, a far more experienced leader than Zelensky, fled his capital as Taliban forces approached. In 2014, one of Zelensky's predecessors ran away from Kyiv as protesters closed in on his residence. He still lives in Russia today. Early in the Second World War, the leaders of Albania, Belgium, Czechoslovakia, Greece, Poland, the Netherlands, Norway and Yugoslavia, among others, fled the country in advance of the German Wehrmacht and lived out the war in exile. And I think this is a really good point. And I know that we, when we've had Sergio on the past, he's said you know, very eloquently that it didn't really come as a surprise to Ukrainians that Lensky stayed. But I think it is important to emphasize that, that it was a historically significant decision and one that contrasted with what it usually happens in those circumstances. So I thought it was worth reading that bit. The other just, I thought, very interesting insight is it talks about what Zelensky does when he's on the train traveling around the country. And uh, one of the things that apparently he does is he reads history books. Uh, and it, in the piece, it talks about the one that he's reading, which I think based on what uh, uh, the description in the book is, is a bit called Hitler and Stalin Parallel Lives by Alan Bullock, uh, which is a sort of dual biography of, um, uh, of, of the two dictators in the 20th century. And it sounds like, you know, he's trying to learn from, from history in reading about these two figures and the mistakes that they made and uh, why you know, how to defeat them in a modern day context or the modern day equivalent in the form of Vladimir Putin. So I just thought that was, again, another little nugget of information that I'd not read before, which I think is revealing. Um, I can't remember what the Churchillist quote, so I'm sort of butchering it here, but it's something like the further you look back, the further you can look forward. And, and I think that Zelensky has seen uh, the the value of history and the value of, of of using history as a means of making key and critical strategic decisions in a way that perhaps a lot of other European leaders and indeed Vladimir Putin himself has not done. We've spoken in the past of how Putin has corrupted history and used history purely as a manipulation tool rather than learning its lessons. And I think there's a stark contrast there. So perhaps uh, Zelensky versus Putin is a might be the volume one of us is reading on a train in the future. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Uh, Colin or Roland, would you like to go next? Uh, yeah, just to, to return to uh, the subject that Roland was warming to earlier about um, the use of pickup trucks in war. Uh, I, I can also say that from, from my own experience in places like Libya, the the groups that use these things uh, have, have turned it into an art form, um, its own kind of uh, with, using their own sort of special guerrilla warfare techniques. For example, in, in urban fighting in Libya, what, what you would often see would be weapons mounted with anti-tank, uh, pickups mounted with anti-tank guns. And the, the, the drivers would perfect ways of doing U-turns in and out of alleyways and other uh, hiding places so they could suddenly appear and fire a few blasts and then suddenly U-turn back into um, uh, around a corner or a hiding place 
Um, very much a kind of guerrilla technique, not the sort of thing I've ever seen the, the, the British Army or any conventional forces doing. So they, they do seem to have quite an evolving role, um, especially because they are so cheap to make, um, whether you can produce them, whether you produce them, uh, you know, through a conventional army factory or whether you simply um, make them in, in improvised fashion, as we've seen in Ukraine. Um, I'll also add that it's, it's not the only um, vehicle, civilian vehicle, that has been used in as an improvised war, war vehicle over the years. And often it seems to have to do with, not, not so much with the technical specifications, but simply the availability of certain kinds of cars on the second-hand car market. I remember when I was in Iraq in 2004, 2005, um, uh, lots of insurgents were fighting the Americans started using the Vauxhall Vectra as their, their, their car of choice for carrying out assassinations. Um, this was because after the fall of Saddam Hussein, a large amount of Vauxhall Vectras were imported on, in the used car market into Iraq. Uh, they were going cheap. Um, they were quite fast. And also they had a, um, an automatic um, sunroof that was very handy as a, as a gun turret if you, in case you were wanting to do a passing drive-by. So th th there are often strange quirks to these stories uh, about why a particular vehicle becomes popular that we're not, uh, not always aware of, um, often to do with mundane fluctuations in the, in the second-hand car market. Um, the, the other thing I would add is that the L200, um, which we were talking about, it, it's just one of many pickup trucks that is popular in this fashion. The reason it gets name checked a lot, I think, is because after a while, the, the mechanics who are making the improvised fittings for these vehicles develop sort of standardized templates for fitting on to certain vehicles of certain types. And I think they just had a glut of L200s. So it's when they see an L200 now, they know exactly how to fit it all up. That's enough for me. I Thank you very much, Colin. And I would advise everybody listening, do go and read Colin's piece on the Telegraph website, The British Farming Vehicles Being Turned Into Ukrainian Rocket Launchers. That's the title. You can find it uh, in the Ukraine section of the website. Thank you very much, Colin. Thank you, Francis. Uh, Roland Oliphant, would you like the very final words? Thank you. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd endorse everything Colin just said. And, and, and again, it's a, it is such a fascinating little um, element of, of recent military history, um, uh, the technical. Absolutely fascinating thing. Um, I, I also wanted to add to what um, uh, to what Francis just said about you know Zelensky reading history um, and and the strength of that and and looking into it. I mean he's he's not the only one, right? Um, uh, Napoleon was a great was a great reader, um, a great reader of history. Um, you know Jim Mattis, uh, the U.S. Marine general, is always talking about how important. Um, it is to read and 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 I always say if you know if people are asking me you know um, what should you do what kind of education do you need to, to be a foreign correspondent to do this job um, I'd say you know it's history history in the language um, that, that there is nothing nothing better um, to kind of get the sense of uh, of what it is you're seeing um, well Matt I just want to leave us um, with just a, just a reminder about um, you know realities in Ukraine um, life for ordinary people um, just exchanging a few text messages um, with friend in Kiev this morning um, you know uh, blackouts aren't, aren't 
aren't constant, um, but still kind of trying to have to, you know, people trying to wash themselves, um, you know, in the bathroom at a cafe, um, or you can go to these these points of invincibility. Um, I, I'm told some of them are uh, in not particularly attractive places. One of them is in a pre-trial uh, <laughs> pre um, detention centre, um, uh, and therefore some people thinking, hmm, well, do I want to do I want to go down there? Um, however, on one one point of brightness for for our British listeners at least, in Kiev. They do have eggs. Um, the price has gone up. They are a bit more expensive. They do have eggs. I've been trying to buy eggs for about three days. Um, so uh, that that is that is one point on which um, Kiev is definitely beating London. Ukraine: The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.